All right, everyone, this is Sam Sherrington, host of the Twimble AI podcast. And today I'm coming to you live from the Future Frequency podcast studio at the AWS reInvent conference here in Las Vegas. And I am joined by Ahmad Mostak. Ahmad is founder and CEO of Stability AI. If this is the first episode of our reInvent series that you are listening to, don't try adjusting your audio settings. It's definitely me. After a few days here at reInvent in the dry desert here in Nevada, my voice is on his last legs but I think we'll make it through this. Before we get going, be sure to take a moment to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to today's show. And if you want to check us out in studio, you can bounce over to YouTube for the interview. Ahmad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Super excited to talk to you. You are, of course, the founder and CEO of Stability. Stability is the company behind Stable Diffusion, which is a multimodal model that has been getting a lot of fanfare, I think. Mm -hmm. Welcome, and I'd love to jump in by having you share a little bit about your background. Yeah, no, I think it's been uh, super interesting. I think uh, Stable Diffusion is kind of a specific text-to-image model. Now, as for me, let's see, I started off maths computer science at uni, enterprise developer, and then became a hedge fund manager, and uh, one of the largest video game investors in the world, and then artificial intelligence. And I was doing that, and it was a lot of fun, and then my son was diagnosed with autism, and they said there was no cure or treatment, so I quit switched to advising hedge funds and built an AI team to do literature review of all the autism literature and then biomolecular pathway analysis of neurotransmitters to repurpose drugs to help him out. And it kind of worked. He went to mainstream school and was super happy. That's awesome. Uh, it was kind of cool. Good trade. Good trade. Then I went back to the hedge fund world, won some awards. I was like, that's boring. Then decided to make the world a better place. So first off, took the Global X Prize for Learning. That was a $15 million prize from Elon Musk and Tony Robbins for the first app to teach kids literacy and numeracy without internet. My co-founder and I have been deploying that around the world, and now we're teaching kids in refugee camps literacy and numeracy in 13 months and one hour a day. And we're about to AI the crap out of that. In 2020-2021, I uh, designed and led the uh, United Nations, one of the United Nations AI initiatives against COVID-19. Kayak Collective Augmented Intelligence Against COVID-19 launched at Stanford, backed by the WHO, UNESCO, and the World Bank. And that was really interesting, because we we're trying to use the world Make the world's knowledge free on COVID-19 with Core 19. So there's a 500,000 paper data set, freely available to everyone. Yeah. And then use AI to organize it because it's really confusing. Right. During that, lots and lots of uh, interesting tech kind of came through. But I realized these foundation models are super powerful. You can't have them controlled by any one company. Mm -hmm. It's bad business and it's not the correct thing ethically. So I thought, let's widen this and create open source foundation models for everyone because I think it can really advance humanity. And again, I think it'll be great to see these things proliferate so we can have an open discussion about it and also have the value created from just these brand new experiences. That's awesome. And when did you get started down that part of the journey? About two years ago. Stability's okay. been going for about 13 months now. Yeah, when I think about the a lot of stable diffusion goes back to this the latent diffusion paper, which was not even a year ago. It's not even a year ago. I think the whole thing kind of kicked off with Clip released by OpenAI in January of last year. So I actually had COVID during that time while doing my COVID thing. Okay. My daughter came to me and said, Dad, you know all that stuff you do, taking all that knowledge and squishing it down to make it useful for everyone? Can you do that with images? Like, well, we can. Yeah. So I built a system for her based on VQGAN and Clip. Okay. So an image generating model. And then Clip is an image to text model where she created like a vision board of everything she wanted, a description of what she wanted to make and generated 16 different images. And then she said how each one of those is different and it changed the latents. And then it generated another 60, another 60, another 60. And then eight hours later, she made an image that she went on to sell as an NFT for $3,500. Wow. And donated the proceeds to India Code Relief. 
okay. where I thought was awesome. She's seven years old. Wow. And then I was like, this is transformative technology. Image is the one it's at. Language, we're already at 85%. We're going to go to 95%. Image, we're at 10%. We're not a visual species. Like the easiest way for us to communicate is what we're doing right now. We're having a nice chat. Then text is the next hardest. And image, like be it images or PowerPoints, are impossible. Let's make it easy. This tech can do that. So we started funding the entire sector. Google Collab Notebooks, models, all these kind of things. Um, latent diffusion was done by the Confis Lab at the University of Munich, who are led on the Stable Diffusion one as well. Amazing lab led by Bjorn Yomar and led by Robin Rombach, who was one of our lead developers here at Stability. And then there was work by Catherine Krausen, Rivers Have Wings is her Twitter handle, on clip condition models and things like that. And the whole community just came together and built really cool stuff. Then you had entities like Midjourney, where we just gave grants for the beta that started operationalizing it. And it's all come together now to the finality of Stable Diffusion that was released on August 23rd. So that was led by uh, the Confis Lab. And then we ourselves at Stability, Runway ML, Eleuther AI, community that we kind of help run, and Lion all came together to put out 100,000 gigabytes of image text pairs, 2 billion images turned into a 2 gigabyte file that runs natively on your MacBook that can create anything. Yeah. It's kind of insane. And the speed in which it all came together is mind-boggling. Yeah, like our model was to have a core team and then like contributors and partners from academia and mm-hmm. then these communities that we kind of built and accelerated. So like tens of thousands of people from OpenBioML, we're doing protein folding work to Eleuther with language models to Harmony with audio. And it turned out that's a really good system to just iterate and experiment with these things at exactly the right time. And now it's progressed. So like when we started with Stable Diffusion and launched it in August, 5.8 seconds for a generation on an A100. As of yesterday, 0.86 seconds. As of two weeks from now, it'll be 20 times faster with our new still models. So you're getting to 24 frames a second, high resolution image creation from basic blobs a year ago. I don't think we've ever seen anything that fast. And the uptake has been crazy. So I believe on Monday, the number of GitHub stars for Stable Diffusion overtook Ethereum and Bitcoin. It's overtaken Kafka, everything else. I think it'll overtake kind of PyTorch and TensorFlow in like a month or two. And that's since inception. Like over the last month, I think Mastodon has had 6,000 GitHub stars over the last week. Stable Diffusion 2 has had 6,000. Yeah, and Stable Diffusion 2 was just released this month, right? It was released a week ago, yeah, yeah, last month. (laughs) These times delay. So Stable Diffusion 1, we kind of use the Lion data set to create the image model, and then we use OpenAI's Clip L14 to kind of condition it. So we combine the text model and the image model. With Stable Diffusion 2, instead use something called OpenClip, run by kind of the Lion charity, whereby we had an open data set for both, because OpenAI did amazing work open sourcing Clip, but we didn't know what data was inside it. So it learned all these concepts, and we're like, how does it know that? And so when we launched Stable Diffusion, kind of as a collaboration, we had all these questions about attribution, about what's in the data set, safe for work, not safe for work. But you can't control that if you don't control half the data set and half the learning. So Stable Diffusion 2 had that, but it also had a better text encoder model. So now basically it's heading towards photorealism. You can get photorealistic outputs from it if you can press it right. Yeah, and again, kind of insane. Like you just see these things generate in a second. You're like, it can be completely like artistic or completely photorealistic. These people do not exist. This landscape or this interior does not exist. I don't think we've ever actually seen anything like this because the majority of humanity doesn't believe they can visually create. Just like before the Gutenberg press, you couldn't write or read. But now, hundreds of thousands of developers, I think we've had like 380,000 developers sign up, I think, on Hugging Face, mm-hmm. and now using this to create ridiculous things. And now that it gets to real time, what does that even look like when people can just seamlessly communicate visually? 
Yeah. Like we could literally in a few months, a year, definitely, this podcast, you could generate a live video almost on it mm-hmm. of all the topics that we're talking about, which is insane. So one of the examples that you like to use is killing PowerPoint. So we've got the text. That's where you usually start. Yeah. And then you go through this long process to to make it pretty or engaging. Aesthetic, right? Yeah. Because, you know, what these models do, like these attention-based models, like it's interesting to come out actually. So with my son, with his autism, autism is kind of social interaction disorder. It's caused, in my opinion, largely by a GABA glutamate imbalance in the brain. So GABA calms you down when you pop a Valium, glutamate excites you. Mm-hmm. And obviously in our industry, a lot of people kind of have people they know on the spectrum or they're just highly there because it lends itself sometimes but there's a dual-edged thing. Because of all that stuff, what happens is that there's too much glutamate. It's like when you're tapping your leg because there's too much going on in your brain. Imagine that was like that all the time. You couldn't think straight. Yeah. And so you can't form the connections of like a cup means cup your hands or a cup or a world cup in your brain. That's why there's a lot of cases where they can't communicate properly. Addressing those factors can calm it down. And then you basically start teaching them. Just like when you have a stroke, a cup means this, a cup means that, a cup means that. And they can start talking or, you know, progress. With these attention-based models, you've moved from kind of giant extrapolation of data to paying attention to the most important parts between words and pixels, which is kind of crazy for the denoising process of diffusion. The latents that are built up there, where it has all the concepts of a cup, means that if you have a cup in a sentence, it understands what that is in that context, a World Cup or cupping the hands, and then can do these images, which is kind of insane. So it works like that part of the human brain. I think that's what's so exciting. That's what lets you have the compression of knowledge like I said, 100,000 gigabytes into two gigabytes is like where Piper from that Silicon Valley HBO show, right? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Yeah. But that's because... 100 terabytes? 100,000 gigabytes, 100 terabytes, 100 terabytes yeah. was our input data, and the output file's two gigs. Yeah. And it's not optimized yet. We reckon we can get that to 400 megabytes. Oh, wow. A 400 megabyte file that now works on an iPhone that can generate any image in seconds by description. And you can go the other way as well. You can take an image and turn it into text. And that text encoding is only a few lines that can generate a high-resolution masterpiece. It's insane. It's nuts. And I think we were kind of a bit misguided by, not misguided, but you know, the focus was on scale is all you need, 540 billion parameter, trillion parameter, large language models. Yeah. Stable diffusion is 890 million parameters. And this is kind of pointing something to the future because, like, OpenAI took uh, GPT-3, 175 billion parameters, mm-hmm. and they instructed it, so reinforcement learning with human feedback, by getting annotators to use it and then seeing which neurons kind of lit up these kind of latent space things. Instruct GPT had equivalent performance. I think they probably use a larger version of that at 1.3 billion parameters mm-hmm. because, kind of, you don't need all the information of the world completely to do right. stuff. You just need some of it. Image models, though, are surprisingly small like the largest we've seen was the 12 billion parameters are you dally model but now like i said we're at 900 million parameters and we've had great success with our 400 million parameter models our 4 billion parameter models are better actually the largest is party which was from google at 20 billion we don't know what an optimal data set is what optimal parameter size is for these particular non-text models yeah text models themselves text is quite a dense encoding i think will tend larger but combining these models is going to be super interesting as we move forward. Yeah. So a lot of your efforts thus far have been on shrinking the model to make the performance better, to make it smaller, faster. Do you see a pull towards larger models or do you think it's a different paradigm altogether where there's not going to be that kind of drive to make the model bigger and bigger? I think there'll be a mixture of things. Again, like what we saw with the DeepMind Chinchilla paper was that the scaling laws weren't necessarily appropriate. 
So that showed that a 67 billion parameter model trained on five epochs would outperform 175 billion parameter model. But actually what it really showed, if you dig into the details, is that data is what you need. And what does that data look like? We haven't done the proper data augmentation in other studies. But this is also like, you can think of these models like, Stable Diffusion 1 was a precocious kindergartner. And we talked about the whole internet, so it occasionally turned like a little bit off in some of the outputs. Yeah. Stable Diffusion 2, you get into like grade school now, but still super precocious. And we made it safe for work and safer for work and a whole bunch of other things. Dedupe the data sets. We're still not feeding it the right information. Once we know what information to feed it, we'll make it even better. And I don't think that trends to larger. I think it turns to more efficient. And I think one of these things is the accessibility. Because we optimize stable diffusion kind of as a group and collective to be available on low energy devices, not just like 3090s or A100s, you can download it on your MacBook right now. A MacBook M2, as of today, can generate an image in 18 seconds of any type. In a couple of weeks, it'll be less than a second. So you can have PyTorch, you can have Jax or whatever, and you can just start coding. And so that opens it up to so many people. It's a new type of programming primitive. This hashed file that can create anything. Dive into the connection between programming and stable diffusion. So if you think about it, you're creating an experience when you're programming, right? Yeah. And so if you use the diffusers library from Hugging Face, it's like a couple of lines you can be using stable diffusion in a code base. Mm-hmm. And again, it can run your MacBook with no internet. Okay. Right? So what type of experiences can you do when you have this verifiable file Words go in, images come out. It opens up a whole world of ex- possibilities. Yeah. It's like an ultra library in a way. Yeah. Like the library condensed in an AI model. And we're not really used to that, like birds and kind of some of these other things, but nothing that has this massive range, shall we say. Like two billion images, a snapshot of the internet, mm-hmm. compressed down. Yeah. You're kind of thinking more broadly, like a lot of the conversation about stable diffusion today is about art and the creation part of that process. Thinking more broadly about practical applications, and this is maybe getting into something I wanted to speak about later, just where you see the company going. Talk about some of the other things that are disrupted beyond just, you know, making pretty pictures, arts and crafts, right? Yeah, I mean, I think art is like, we think about it as like, man, artists never make money, right? Unless they do. Like my seven-year-old daughter, she's obviously, you know, one of the OGs now in generative art. Yeah. I actually asked her, why don't you make any more art anymore? And she's like, well, dad, there's this thing called supply and demand. (laughs) If I reduce the supply and you can make this whole industry, the demand for my stuff will go up. So the value will go up, like paying for your own university. <laughs> Creative industry is worth hundreds of billions of dollars a year. Video games, 170 billion, like movies are 80 billion. This will all be disrupted by this technology. If you think about the creation process, like one of our directors, he was doing a shoot with a famous actress. It was arranging it's going to be $113,000. Just fly her out and do all this and get all these other people just for three days. He fine-tuned a stable diffusion model, did it in three hours, 2,000 shots, photorealistic. Meaning the entire shoot was generated as opposed to... Yeah, like all the shots, because there's going to be a shoot to kind of put her in different things to go into the movie kind of process. So concept artists are using this to become more efficient. There's a group, Corridor Digital. Yeah. They created Spider-Man Everyone's Home, which is like a two and a half minute trailer in the Into the Spider-Verse style by having Spider-Verse model that they train on like 100 images. Okay. And you can't tell. It's like, wow, this is amazing animation. No, it isn't. They just interpolated every single frame and used stable diffusion to kind of do image to image. It's the craziest thing. It would have cost millions of dollars before. They did it like a few days. So I think media is going to be the first to be disrupted here because that creation process is hard. Right. And now it's easy. 
I would think industrial design, for example, wouldn't be too far behind. Like Autodesk, they spend a lot of time thinking about ways to use machine learning to help designers. Yeah, they've got amazing kind of data sets. You've got the canvas of the world that have every single click on design. Mm -hmm. It can make all of those easier because the system learns. Like it's a foundational model in some ways because it's also like a base foundation that you can then yeah. train on your own things. Yeah. And it learns physics and all sorts of other stuff, which is a bit creepy, but it can learn about that specific type of design that you might want to do. We're working with car manufacturers right now who want to have custom models based on their entire back catalog. And then they want to iterate and combine different concepts, and then it automatically stitches together these cars and combines them. We also didn't just release the model. We also released an in-painting model. So you can delete parts of a picture and have seamless edits based on your text conditioning right. on that. You've got an image-to-image -image model that can define it into any style. We have four soon-to-be-eight times upscaler. That's like enhance, enhance, enhance on a TV show, you know? Yeah. And all of these are going sub-second now in terms of the speed of iteration on them. Yeah. So I think creative is the first, but then I said some of this design kind of things. Then it goes into more visual communication, like I said, slides. Yeah. If you've got an image model combined with a language model combined with a code model, you never need to make a presentation again. And it understands what aesthetics are. Right. Like one of the things we did with Stable Diffusion thing is that we created a Discord bot where everyone rated the outputs on Stable Diffusion 1.1. And then we use that to filter down our giant 2 billion image data set into the most aesthetically pleasing things using clip conditioning on that. Okay. And then we trained on that and it became more aesthetic and pleasing. A bit weird in some ways, but again, these feedback loops become very, very interesting because to get the wide range of viability on these image models, language models, audio models, others, the human in the loop factor is essential because yeah. your typical training data is quite diverse but you want to customize it to the needs and wants of the humans or the sector or the specificness of that. Yeah. There are other models out there. You mentioned Midjourney a few times. You mentioned Dolly. We've talked about performance as a kind of a target differentiator. What are some of the other ways that you see Stable Diffusion kind of defining itself relative to the other things that are popping up? Open source will always lag closed source because they can always just take open source and upgrade it, especially with foundation models, right? Hey. I think data is kind of a key thing. So with that's been a recurring theme that's come up in our conversation a lot. The idea of the human in a loop and data, refining the data versus evolving the model, the whole data-centric AI idea. Yeah, and so it's kind of a data-centric thing where, like, if you look at how people adapt to these models, right now they're doing few-shot learning, right? Mm -hmm. Or they're doing basic fine-tuning. There's no point in training your own model because it's freaking moving so fast. Yeah. Like, we'll have stable diffusion version 3 in a few months. We had a 20 times speed up yesterday yeah. on the model. This is insane, these kind That's of moves. Nice. I don't think we've ever seen anything quite this exponential. But what happens then is that if you go via an API, there's only so much you can do. That's what a lot of these companies do. Or if you go via an interface, like, you know, with a mid-journey or something like that, or a DALI, if you've got the model yourself, then you can play, you can experiment, you can adapt it. So the language models from the Eleuther community, GPT-Neo, JNX, they're GPT-level models, but only up to 20 billion parameters. They've been downloaded 20 million times by developers. Mm -hmm. And they don't need to tell anyone, they just get on with things. Yeah. And so one of the interesting things for me is that the positioning is the tooling around this, because once you've got those primitives, you can build stuff around, just like you've seen loads of community web UIs and other interfaces to interact with stable diffusion. And you know, for our own company, it's a very simple thing. This is like a database on steroids, yeah. if you think about it. Like it's a database that comes pre-filled with interesting stuff, and that's how most people are using it right now. But soon, when we upgrade it a few bits and it comes I mean, mature. The idea is it's a data, it's a kind of a magic box database of images and your query is your prompt. Exactly. Yeah. It's a data store, yeah. except for it's a super efficient data store. Yeah. 100,000 gigs to two, and it can do all sorts of wonderful things. Yeah. So right now, everyone's using like the pre-baked version, like the Laura Mipsum version, right? All right? But then in a few years, everyone will want their own custom ones. So our business model is very simple. 
take the exabytes of data from content companies, convert them into these models and make them useful. Because we think content is turning intelligent. And it goes beyond media companies to bio, pharma and others. And we're probably the only foundation model company building cutting edge AI that's willing to work with people and go to the data. So models to the data, I think, is a very interesting thing based on open frameworks. So you don't have the lock-in of some of these other ecosystems. It'd be like, I'll trade a model for you, but you have to be locked into my thing. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that you mentioned in passing is that you've seen the model learn physics. What does that mean? So like, if you type in a lady looking across a still lake, it will do her reflection in the water. Mm. Raindrops, it gets correct and things like that. And as you train it more, it learns more and more concepts okay. of how things interact, which again is a bit insane. Yeah. Like you can show it the sides, you can train it on like a experimental car, like a cyber like Considering how much effort's gone into in the visualization community, trying to get that stuff right. Exactly. You know, so like you can, you can show stuff. it parts of like a Cybertruck. Yeah. And it doesn't know Cybertruck, say for instance. And then you can ask it what the back of the Cybertruck looks like and it will guess and it'll probably get it right. It knows the essence of truckness. Yeah. So rather than having these very specific models that learn stuff, you can now have something that can do just about anything in terms of lighting and got prompt to prompt where you can say, make this picture sadder, turn Emad into a clown or a stormtrooper and it automatically does that because it understands the nature of these things and the physics and balancing of that, which again, is kind of insane. This has big implications for the rendering industry and other things because this is a far more efficient renderer that can do image to image and transform something into something else. Nobody's quite sure how it works. <laughs> and I've got theories. And this is one of these things with these foundation models, like they're just an alien type of experience when you first really start pushing it. Most people are surface level. When you start pushing through it, you're like, it's really curious that it can do this. It doesn't have agency. Yeah. It's a two gigabyte file. But the fact that you can have that compression of knowledge that understands concepts, it's really interesting. Will that always be a fundamental limiter? Meaning, you know, if you want a quick and dirty approximation, use something like stable diffusion. But if you want a precise rendering, you have to turn to traditional techniques. I think it's going to be, I always say it's part of a process. Yeah. Architecture, you shouldn't try to do zero shot everything. That's what people tend to yeah. fall into a trap of like, yeah, I just wanted to know, like, have kind of KNNs or knowledge graphs or retrieval augmented systems or kind of whatever. Put it as part of a process pipeline. But definitely quick and dirty, it does very, very, very well, <laughs> better than anything. But then I think that also, this is why we have our in-painting and all these other models. It's going to be part of multiple models doing multiple things for multiple purposes. Sometimes there might be a giant model once you get to a certain stage. At other times, you might just want to have a quick and dirty 256 by 256 iteration yeah. loop. And so what's what we've seen as well, like with Stable Diffusion 2, we actually flatten the latent space through deduping and also a bunch of other things. So it's more difficult to prompt. Stable Diffusion 1 was quite easy to prompt. Stable Diffusion 2 is more difficult, but it's got much more fine-grained control. But where we're going, we're not going to use prompts because it will learn from... What do you see taking the place of prompts? Well, I think it will just be a case of like, you'll have your own embedding store that points to points in the latent space and then pulls up like the things that you like most commonly. So it learns, and then kind of there's that interaction between the two things. So embedding is being a multi-vector representation of kind of what's in there. So I think that people's own context is important, and AI models haven't really understand people's AI person context in that, or companies or other things. And again, this is fine-tuning effects where you can, with a two gigabyte file, actually have your own model. Right. And then why do you need to prompt trending on ArtStation, 3D Octane Render, and all these things? when it learns that that's what you want to have, that's this type of style that you like. Right. Having said that, I think prompting is just very difficult. Like my wife's been trying to prompt me for 16 years and she hasn't quite managed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've touched on a couple of things. 
open source versus API, and very briefly, this idea of kind of customization. And I think, you know, based on stuff that I've heard you talk about in the past, like you're very strongly opinionated around the model that through which you're kind of delivering the technology beyond just the technology itself. Can you talk a little bit about your thoughts there and kind of what's driving that? So I think this is incredibly powerful technology. I think it's one of the big epoch changes in humanity because you have a model that can do anything and approximate. Well, there's two types of things, type one and type two, logical thinking and then principle-based thinking. This can kind of get to principle-based thinking. Like we still don't have AI that does good old-fashioned reasoning with logic. Yeah. This can take leaps. That's what we said, like quick and dirty approximation can do that. Yeah. You type it in and you get like a hundred different images of like a book or a vase or something like that that you can then iterate and improve yeah. on. So it's a very different experience. So our thing was like, again, put this out as foundation models, like again, benchmark models that people can then develop around because the pace of innovation will outpace anything that's closed, but also it addresses things like the digital divide and minorities and other things. So like with OpenAI and DALI2, they introduced anti-bias filter, which automatically for non-gendered words added a gender and a race. So when you type in sumo wrestler, it would do Indian female sumo wrestler, yeah. which I suppose could exist. There are probably not many probably of them. Want. It's probably not an intent. Because it's kind of limited, whereas with our model, what happens is we released it, and then a team out of Japan created a Japanese text encoder, the alternative. So salary man, rather than meaning man with lots of salary, meant a very sad man. You know, kind of these local contexts, these local elements, these local fine tunes, I think, were what were essential, and also widening the discussion. Because a lot of the stuff that occurs with these big powerful models is that we won't release them because we're scared about what's going to happen. Because right. the no, 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 is the no, no, no. So that's fair. You know, that's an opinion. But that shouldn't mean that it shouldn't be available to other people because of the power of this technology. Because otherwise, they'll just go to corporates first and it won't be available, despite the fact it could uplift them creatively and communicatively and other things. One way to think about it, if I'm really mean in some discussions sometimes, is like, why don't you want Indians or Africans to have this technology? Because there's no comeback. You can't say that more education is needed or it's too dangerous and they're not responsible. Because the reality is this is technology of humanity and it's an echo of what happened with cryptography. We can't let cryptography be open and the government classified it as a weapon here in the US right. because bad guys might use it. Yeah. But we use it now to protect ourselves as well. Open source will always be more secure than closed source if the community rallies together. Because what do we run our infrastructure on here at AWS? It's not really Windows servers, is it? It's Linux. Right. Databases are MySQL and things like that because the community can come together and build stronger systems and more effective systems. But it's crazy how fast this is going, and so it's a difficult line to tow down. Yeah, yeah. you've mentioned that more recent versions of Stable Diffusion include, like, say, for work filters, that kind of thing. So it sounds like something that you're thinking about and care about and not just putting out without any kind of controls? Yeah, so the original version, look, again, it was led by uh, the Confis Lab. And we said very specifically, you guys get to decide and we will advise. Yeah. Because it was an academic endeavor, even if the people, like one of them works for us, another one works for Runway and et cetera. Right. It is the nature of the thing. And so we're very respectful of kind of entities that we collaborate with, because it can be a minefield, right? You're not trying to whitewash anything. So it was released under a Creative ML Open Rail license, which is a new type of license from Hugging Face that said you have to use it ethically. Add a safety filter because the decision was made by the developers not to filter the data. So it could be a baseline from which we could then figure out biases and other things. And that removed a lot of nudity and kind of other things, especially because it was accidentally creating it. Mm. Stable Diffusion 2 was trained on a highly safe for work data set. So it's massively more safe. It doesn't have a filter because it doesn't need one. Mm. It has some drawbacks, such as one of the things that we saw during the fine tuning after Stable Diffusion 1 
is that people trained on not safe for work images. The internet is for that, whatever. Yeah, they fine-tuned it. Yeah, they fine-tuned it. They took yeah. lots of images that were not safe for work. Right. So obviously there was the standard effect of that, because again, they're free to kind of use it as a community. But the side effect is that when you actually used it for safe for work prompts, it did amazing humans, like photorealistic, <laughs> because it learned about anatomy from these not safe for work images. Mm. It was quite funny. So Stable Diffusion 2 out the box is a bit less good at anatomy because we removed a lot of those things. Mm. Not much. And again, we're adding it back in safely. We really care about that. The other thing that we care about a lot is we view this community as big. We're creating millions, hundreds of millions of artists. But the artists themselves are part of the community. So the artists are like, why are they using and prompting my name on this? So yeah, so artists are part of the community. And they were asking, can we opt out of the data sets? So some were actually asking, can we opt in? Because we're not in the data set. And so we worked with Spawning and Lion and others on opt-in and opt-out mechanisms, because I think that's the right thing to do. I think that it's ethical to use web scrapes to create models like this, especially because the diffusion process doesn't create copies or photo mashes. It actually right. learns principles. It's like a human. But at the same time, if people don't want to have their data in the data set, they should opt out. If they want it in, they should opt in. In fact, we've had thousands of artists sign up for the system. It's been 50-50, opt-in and opt-out. <laughs> thing is really interesting and not maybe what some people would expect yeah yeah interesting interesting maybe shifting gears a little bit to stability ai as a company as an organization i've heard it described as variously an art studio kind of looks and feels a little bit like a research lab feels a little bit like a bunder of things a provider of gpus and instances how do you describe what it is i mean stability ai is a platform company mm -hmm. so we're trying to build the layer one for foundation model ai and mm -hmm. we think the future will be open source on this so our research lab is researchers who have loads of freedom and they can, in their contracts, open source anything they create. And there's a revenue share for when we run the models on the API. Even if the researchers don't work at stability, they still get cut checks, which I think is a very interesting way of doing things. Yeah. We've got a product team that takes the open source stuff, just like anyone can, and productizes it into things like Dream Studio. We have Dream Studio Pro coming up, which is a full enterprise level piece of software with like 3D keyframing, animation, video, audio, everything. We've got a forward deploy team whereby for our top customers with the most content that we transformed in foundation models, we're basically embedding teams inside there and saying, you don't need to build a foundation model team. We're your team because we do all the modalities from text to language to audio. Okay. That's something that's super appealing to people. Then we've got infra team that is supporting our five, 6,000 A100s and mm -hmm. the infrastructure to scale APIs to billions in support with Amazon and others as I can you talk a little bit about some of the ways that you engage with enterprises? Like what are the kinds of things that they want help doing with these models? So the pace of ML research is literally exponential with a 23 month doubling. It looks crazy. So they can't keep on top of this. And there's very few Measured people. published papers. Published papers on Archive, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's, it's always nice when you see it actually exponential. Like, ugh. need an AI to help with that, you know? But like, when you look at this, they're realizing they need to be on top of this technology now. And they come to us as kind of almost... Consultants, so it's like a Palantir type model yeah. where we're like, we'll fine tune some models for you and we'll make them usable through Dream Studio. But you shouldn't train your own models now because the models aren't going to mature for another year. When that time comes, we will train the models for you. We will fine tune them for you. We'll create custom models for you. That's our highest touch engagement with a couple of dozen entities. And when you're telling them they shouldn't train models, are you talking about from scratch? From scratch, or... yeah. They will be able to eventually, but right now it's not a sensible thing to train the models from scratch. Yeah. Like Stable Diffusion took 200,000 A100 hours. Yeah, to... Like 600K you spent on it? Yeah, 600K. Yeah. We actually spent less because of our discounts, but I can't say what our discounts are. <laughs> and you can figure out. Retail? Yeah, retail. 
Retail sale diffusion to about 100,000 hours. Retail open clip, because we have to make the clip model about $5 million. Mm. So, you know, these things add up. Yeah, quite a large bill. I think that when you kind of look at all of these, now's not the right time to do big trainings for big companies. Mm-hmm. Because again, the model architecture is just increasing on Evolving, really. ridiculous rate. Yeah. But then it's going to level off. You can't keep improving forever. And then that's the right time to train up your own models. So they'll be better than these fine gene models. But then you have models with multiple modalities. You know, this is part of the deal, reason we've kind of partnered with SageMaker. Because people need to get used to this technology now. And they'll have all these different primitives, these different models. They can mix and match to create brand new things going forward. Yeah. And SageMaker makes it kind of easy to do that. And it makes it easy to address the tail. Because apart from the top couple of dozen companies, we just want to have a SaaS solution for everyone else to be able to access, use, and modify these models. Following up a little bit on the SageMaker and the AWS announcement, kind of read as you selected AWS. From my understanding, you've been using AWS to some extent all along. Yeah, so AWS built the core cluster, and now you know we reached this point. It was originally a 4,100 cluster, which on the public top 500 list would rack about number 10 supercomputer in the world, which yeah. is kind of insane. So Radio just did a great job building that. But then we had to decide what's next, like the managing, the resilience, through some of these other things. Do we build our own next cluster? Amazon came and they said, let's use the SageMaker service to offer a high level of resilience and optimization. So the SageMaker crew, for example, took our language model, GPT Neo X, again, 20 million downloads of this family. Yeah. They went and took the efficiency of a 512A100 training from 103 teraflops per GPU to 163 by optimizing it for Amazon EFA fabric and pipeline parallelism and cross-attention and kind of all these things. And that was an amazing thing. So they're helping us optimize our entire stack from inference to training through to having resilience. So when GPUs fail, they come back up. And the final part of it was just how do we make this accessible through SageMaker and services and the ecosystem they built around that. Now, we're going to make our models available on everything. Right. Right. So like I said, today they became available on the MacBook M1 with native neural engine support, one of the first models ever to have that. It's massively sped up. We've got it working on Qualcomm, we're gonna work on iPhones, all these things. But Amazon's a really great partner because they're infrastructure players, one of the biggest cloud providers in the world. And so that's why we kind of picked them as our preferred partner. Also, super grateful in that we wouldn't be here if they hadn't built us a freaking enormous cluster and really yeah. believed in us. Because we're only a 13 month old startup. Yeah, so everything's been in the cloud the entire time. All the entire time. We had a machine learning ops team of four people managing 4,000 A100s. Wow. Now we're up to nearly 6,000. Was that team managing that cluster kind of bare metal with your own tooling or you know, how much of the Amazon tooling have you? So it was, it was EC2 and then they, Amazon had a system called Parallel Cluster with mm-hmm. Slurm that was used to kind of manage it. And so we've been working for the last four, five, six months just constantly improving it together. And again, it's open source. Yeah. If you go to the Stability AI GitHub, you can literally download all our configurations to run your own parallel cluster on there. And again, this is part of what we really like, the fact that the stack is open source and anyone can take it and they can build their own clusters. Maybe not quite to the size that we did, unless you're feeling really punchy. But still, I think these knowledge and these things should be shared because you find that large model training isn't really an art. Is it really science? It's more of an art. Like one of the most interesting reads you can do is the Facebook OPT 175 logbook for the 175 billion parameter model. They just try stuff and it often fails. And there's the occasional weird thing, like I believe it was the Azure kind of customer support on the 23rd of December, deleted the entire cluster. <laughs> and you're like, man, I feel for you guys. Like it's kind of that. But like I said, this is not just an easy click and play kind of thing. These models yeah. are difficult to train. Yeah. The smallest hardware thing can throw it out. They can be just weird stuff. We're 
making it up and figuring out as we go along. Because remember, transformer architectures are literally only five years old. Yeah, that's incredible. He's thinking about open source and that direction broadly that the, the company is taking. One of the challenges that comes up in open source as it matures is this idea of governance. How do you think about, maybe it's early, talking mm -hmm. about governing a community that's just months old, but do you have thoughts on how the community governs itself over time? Yeah, so I mean, again, it's a complicated one, right? AI yeah. governance and is it policy-led, is it community-led? Who are the voices at the table? Because there's some important things. This is such powerful technology. It's going to be essential, I believe, to the future of humanity. So like, for example, Luther AI is two and a bit years old. That's our language model community, 15,000 people and developers. We're kind of incubating it at the moment. We're going to spin it out into its own separate 501c3 because it shouldn't be us influencing the direction of open source large language models, right? It should be a collective effort. But now we're really going to the governance thing and looking at different examples. And the Linux Foundation is an excellent example of that. So PyTorch has just been given to the Linux Foundation. And so we're in talks with them and a whole bunch of others to say, what are best practices here and what should it really look like given the power of these, some of the decisions you need to make about that. As stability itself, we're setting up subsidiaries in every country such that first off 10% of our equity in those goes to the kids using our tablets because I think they should influence it because that's the next generation. This AI will be important to them. But then we want those to be independent entities that run the AI for India or Vietnam or kind of Malawi, et cetera, because we need to train up a next generation of people to make those decisions for their own country. Because right now what we have is a situation where you've got a few people in San Francisco making decisions on the most powerful infrastructure of the world for everyone. Because let's not deny ourselves, this AI is infrastructure. Mm -hmm. It's essential for where we're going to go. Yeah. And it shouldn't be controlled by any person or entity. Like, I'm very supportive of the whole ecosystem. The one time I, I almost very direct. So I spoke out against OpenAI mm -hmm. because for DALI 2, they banned Ukrainians from using it. They removed any Ukrainian entities from that as well. Yeah. And this is doing the time when they're being oppressed. I said, basically, you have excluded and removed and deleted and oppressed people. And that is ethically and morally wrong. But it's their prerogative as a private company. Right. And if it wasn't for us, there would be no alternative. And so I literally took Ukrainian developers, houses were destroyed, and brought them to the UK. And so this is part of the thing as well. If you have control of this artificial intelligence given to an unregulated entity like these big companies, they can't help themselves but behave in certain ways because they can't release it. More than that, they tend to optimize. So I did a lot of counter-extremism work. I'm advising multiple governments. The YouTube algorithm got hijacked by extremists because the most engaging content was extreme. Again, that's not YouTube's fault. That's full of great people. Yeah. Ad-driven AI companies, they will use this technology to create the most amazing manipulative ads. I guess it's not their fault. It's kind of what they are. So regulation needs to come in appropriately. Governance needs to come in appropriately. But we need to educate and wind in the discussion on this. And the only way to do that is open source. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it will never happen. And so you will have AI basically being a colonial tool in some ways with very Western norms when this is essential infrastructure, like I said, and I believe for everyone. I think the common retort to that is it needs to be controlled because it's so powerful, so dangerous. Yeah. So who are you to control it? I mean, this yeah. is the thing. Like I've heard it divides into a nuclear weapon, like it's a nuclear weapon that can allow humans to create visually. And so you're restricting it. I mean, again, it comes down to a question like yeah. I've asked this. I've never had a question. Why don't you want Indians to have this for Africans? Yeah. And the only answer is because they need more education, so educate them more. Yeah. Because they can't use it responsibly, and you can. It's racist. Yeah. Like, I think fundamentally, if you think about the digital divide, we've seen this with technology being restricted from minority groups and from the rest of the world frequently. It's fundamentally racist because we think we know better in the West, when it's reality we don't because people can take this and extend it, and people are generally good. People are not bad, and if people are bad, as a society, we build systems to regulate that. 
So even if they create deep fakes, we build our social networks and others to have curation mechanisms. We build authenticity schemes like contentauthenticity.org that we back. That sounds like your core of your answer is that the ecosystem will solve the problem. The bad actors come in, they use these tools to cause whatever havoc they'll cause, and then we'll find fixes. The bad actors have the tools already. Yeah. They have tens of thousands of A100s and people. I mean, in a sense, them. you're the proof point of this, right? OpenAI was keeping Dolly closed behind APIs and wait lists and things like that. And you, know, you came up out of nowhere and released uh, something. And that... look, 4chan has had this technology for three months. What if they created mm -hmm. nothing, right? Yeah. Like this isn't going to topple humanity and have more and more people know about it. So we can bring this discussion. But we took a lot of flack. We had a lot of benefits. Yeah. But we brought this discussion into the open, into policy and other fields as well. Like, again, it's my hope that now we act as a forcing function. So I reckon DALI 3 will be open sourced. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the open source whisper. And I think this will be fantastic. Like, let's bring it out into the open because, again, this is foundational infrastructure for extending our abilities. It should not be closed. Yeah. But I don't believe that it should be free forever. And like, actually, it's not open source because it doesn't conform with rule zero of open source in a pure open source way. The creative ML license is not because we say you must use it ethically. Do we hope to move it to open source? Yes under CC by five or MIT license, just like our other models, like our Korean language model, the polyglot one from the Luther or open clip or things like that. Yeah. But again, this needs to be an open discussion, I think, rather than who is deciding it. I don't know. Right. If regulators want to come and regulate it again, that's a democratic decision. And so I'm a big supporter of democracy and kind of these things, but let's use our institutions and our processes rather than trying to make these decisions ourselves in closed rooms. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Imad, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. It's been wonderful speaking with you and learning a bit more about what you're up to. It's a pleasure, and I hope you recover soon as well. <laughs> <laughs> nearly done, nearly done. Thanks so much. Take care. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.